We're looking forward to being in glorious Hilton Head, South Carolina, April 24th through the 26th for the Insights Association Annual Conference. Known for providing exclusive research and objective brand presented content, the agenda for this year's IA Annual has been expanded to deeply examine four important disciplines, qualitative research, experience management, data analytics and quantitative, and behavioral research. Within each, we'll explore merging trends, quality advancements, DEI progress, and tangible business impact. More information on the agenda, which includes presenters from TD Bank, Mondelez, Masonite, Delta Fawcett Company, Fidelity Investments, AARP, and many other leading brands can be found at insightsassociation.org. Use promo code ACBIRD to get 15% off your registration. We hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the little bird marketing company podcast. I'm Priscilla McKinney with you as always, Mama Bird here and CEO. With me today, I've got a lovely fellow cultural anthropologist and you are going to have a great time on two very, very pressing issues that we're all very curious about. You're going to love this guest and I think you're going to find out pretty quickly that Angel and I could probably go to the 7-Eleven, have a Slurpee and have a good time. So get prepared for some fun. Angel Bayon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Priscilla, for having me. All of our conversations end in us kind of laughing and just a little tear coming out the side of our eyes. So So this is going to be great. If you don't know Angel, he is a senior director of insights and cultural intelligence at Paramount. I think you've probably heard of Paramount. I probably don't need an introduction there, but what's so cool about Angel and where he and I always end up in very interesting conversations is that he is a hybrid strategist and a cultural anthropologist. So you talk about that intersection and immediately we're having an amazing cocktail party conversation. (laughs) I love where we're going with these all the time, but he has lots of experience, almost two decades of experience in those fields. And he brings them together in a really interesting way. It's like this idea of customer insight with cultural foresight to actually forecast consumer behavior. I mean, that is such an amazing statement. These are the kinds of things that I love talking about with him. But at Paramount, day-to-day, he oversees thought leadership studies that push organizational thinking internally and externally. And he works with advertising partners to figure out where are we going here in the culture and looking to get inspiration for what consumers are thinking, what they're feeling, where they think they're going. And it's just so fascinating. So Angel, let's get started. I love, love, love the introduction. No one is able to dimensionalize what I do in such a way. So thank you. I appreciate it. You've got my heart. (laughs) Okay, let's dive into the big D word, disruption. Brands are hurting. Digital is such a massive opportunity for these smaller challenger brands to make a mark. You work for one of the big guys. And so with that opportunity, there's also big guys who are bigger ships that need to get steered, who also need to really understand what's going on and what is being digitally disrupted. So where do you even start that? I don't even want to ask the exact question. Like, how do you even frame up digital disruption and what you guys are doing about it? 
Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to operationalize what does disruptive or disruption even mean, Mm -hmm. right? And oftentimes people use disruption and innovation interchangeably, and they are not the same. And if they are talking disruption and innovation, it's always through the lens of their brand, right? It's always like they created a new product, a new campaign. They came up with a new business model for that brand. But it's not in relation to your brand. It's in relation to your category, your audience, the culture that you're trying to be a part of or trying to enter. So disruption is new, right? Like innovation, but it's also about transformation. It's all the new products and services and new brands, but it needs to represent a shift or a change to truly be disruptive. Add that level of surprise, imagination, reevaluation to the category, audience, and culture, not your brand. So I think let's define what disruption is right? I think that's the biggest thing. You have to be strategically additive, right? And not do something for the sake of just doing it. And that's oftentimes what we're hearing now with brands wanting to enter the metaverse. But like, is does it make sense for your brand to enter the metaverse right now? What's your way in? How are you going to own something unique and offer something valuable to the consumer? These are questions people aren't asking. So like if you're entering the metaverse, you're not being disrupted by just entering the metaverse. You have to be strategically additive to that experience. Okay. So you're going to break this down even more for us. And I'm willing to ask the dumb questions because I know Mm -hmm. this is what my audience is thinking. Like, please school us, right? So the things that I'm hearing from you right there, one of the distinctives to me is that it sounds like true disruption feels like more organic. Like it's more an understanding of the big soup that we're swimming in all the different pieces and parts that are coming at consumers and companies, whereas innovation feels more directive. Am I completely off base with that? So what I'm saying is, so the difference to me with innovation is that it's something new, right? And that necessarily a new product doesn't necessarily represent a shift in the industry or with an audience to be disruptive to me, this is how I define it, the distinguishing factor. To be disruptive, it has to create some sort of change. By launching a new product that is disruptive, it's representing and redefining how the category has typically been perceived. Okay. Now put that in the framework for your, the position you sit in, in terms of maybe not even necessarily Paramount, but really in the industry where Paramount sits. How does your industry frame up disruption versus innovation? Yeah. So I can talk specifically on what I do because I don't want to speak for other people in different departments within Paramount. I provide cultural intelligence to our advertising partners, and that can be in the form of video, editorial, presentations, conferences, storytelling. So I try to be disruptive in that way of how I tell stories, how I approach research by not doing things that everyone else did. So when I start a project and a topic, I'm doing a full audit of everything that exists there. And I make sure that the story that I'm telling on X audience or X category or X industry is not duplicative. I don't want to say the same things in the same way. So approaching it that way, that's how you're being disruptive. And to me, that again, if you're doing marketing campaigns or product innovation, it's that change. It's that difference right? So you're not, again, it's about being additive to the discourse, not just adding to the noise. (laughs) I love that. That's such an interesting turn of phrase. 
additive, but not just another voice. And that's really the crux of it. But a lot of businesses would say, yeah, sign us up for that. But that's easier said than done. So what are some frameworks that you use to start explaining to your clients, explaining to the industry? Because you lecture all the time, you do speak, you lecture pretty consistently at the University of Southern California. So I'm kind of curious how you start explaining such a difficult thing to do to the audiences. So yeah, uh, give us the framework, how you start it. So I think what really helps me think of things in a different way is having that trans culture anthropology background. And that's the latter half of my career has been delivering disruptive thinking, but also educating people on how to be a trend forecaster. And the way I try to do that is really showing how little tips and tricks, like little hacks, right? Really to broaden their mind and not necessarily do it how I do it, but for them to apply some of the things that I do it to their day-to-day. So for example, I created a trend toolkit workshop under Paramount because I saw that people were talking about trends, but everyone's kind of saying a different thing, right? So again, let's talk about how do we operationalize trends. And in that workshop, I talk about previous case studies. So for example, I only deal with consumer trends, right? Because if you're working at a brand, let's say you're working for beauty or fashion, predominantly insights people, brand managers, they're only looking at the category, right? So category trends. So I previously, before joining Paramount, I was reached out to by global beauty brands. And basically the project was, we feel behind all of our competitors. We want to be a little bit more leading edge. And I said, okay, let me see your research. And it was the Mintel Beauty Reports. They're speaking to makeup influencers. They're speaking to their customers. And basically, I said to them, listen, all of your competitors are looking at the same research. No wonder you're coming out with the same products, right? It's a sea of sameness in the beauty aisle. And again, this is what I'm saying. You have to be disruptive. And it's not just with the products. It starts with insights. It starts with your approach, right? It starts with your thinking. And I said, and I basically created a roadmap of where beauty trends originate from. Contouring started with the drag community in the 70s, 80s. Matte lipstick, which we all know is a huge, huge trend, started in Chicano car culture in East LA. So you have to broaden your mind, look outside of your audiences, look outside of your categories, because it's all there, right? But you just need to think in a different way. And I also, one other thing too, you have to look beyond your audiences. No brands, when they create a a screener, right, for IDIs or focus groups or even surveys, They always do, we want to reject people that don't use our brands. No one ever studies the anti-consumer. And that's not, you should definitely study them. It's not to convert them, right? But the anti-consumer is going to identify the holes of your brand, the weaknesses, right? So you want to identify those so you can upgrade and fill those gaps for your consumers. The loyals are good, but those middle ground consumers that are kind of like not as brand loyal, maybe they're more worried about price or whatever is available. But if you're able to fill those gaps and upgrade your brand by those things that why people are rejecting it, then you're upgrading it in a very, very easy way. But no one studies their anti-consumer. So there's like little things of like, these are little, little hats. Yeah, yeah. This, this is not rocket science by any means. It's really it's, thinking about how do I do business 
And how can I change it or broaden it? Because let me tell you something, Gen Z is disrupting the rules of marketing altogether. We cannot do business as usual. And I think when we talk about challenger brands, challenger brands are the Gen Zers of brands. Gen Z was born on the internet. Challenger brands were born on the internet too. They don't have that same philosophy or rigidness that the Fortune 500 historically has had. And we're seeing the Fortune 500 start to adapt to that. I totally agree. I'm just, yes, yes, yesing with what you're saying, because what you're talking about is moving away from the echo chamber and really being critical of brand trackers. What is it really telling you? What is it not telling you? Thinking about what that gap in research is and walking away from that. And it's actually like, I love what you said. It's not rocket science, but it is a mindset shift. And it is very hard to get people to be flexible with their thinking and think beyond the category. I love that. That's so simple, but thinking beyond the category. And I do talk a lot about creativity here at our company. And really a lot of times where it comes from is from the most bizarre place. You don't get a creative idea from staying in your lane. The people who really succeed and innovate and disrupt are ones who are very broad in their view and they are kind of generalists. They go look, they're just curious about everything. And it does strike me as odd, Angel, that so often in an industry of market research, which is completely based on curiosity, that so many research reports look like there's no curiosity going on. Let's take a short break. As a business professional, mastering social media is no longer a nice to have set of skills, but a fundamental need in order to advance your career and exceed goals. A lot of people are interested in learning social selling techniques for revenue generation, network building, and maybe even to advance their thought leadership. But what is actually needed is a practical and repeatable system to digitally transform whole teams. Teams that commit to creating meaningful digital communities and learn how to leverage social media to turn relationships into sales online far outperform their competitors and companies that commit to investing in their teams to increase their personal social influence reap the benefit of increased brand awareness and positive upticks in company reputation. Social media is natural, it's cost-effective, and it's an easily leveraged tool at anyone's disposal. What is lacking is an effective and proven system that trains sales, marketing, HR, and executives alike to move from social selling to complete digital transformation and into digital dominance. Our 12-week social selling course is a practical, hands-on experience. It's taken over time specifically to address the needed mindset shifts, the changes in habits and behaviors, and all of this while implementing new skills. You will learn how to network effectively and at scale build rapport with targeted audiences, expand your influence, and become the go-to authority in your area of expertise. So this is not a quick tips and tricks for LinkedIn success flash in the pan. It's a commitment to changing the way you show up online and experience career-shifting breakthroughs. This is expert instruction in small cohorts with personalized one-on-one coaching. If you're interested, go learn more at littlebirdmarketing.com slash social hyphen influence. Yeah. 
And I think what often happens is that I feel like, and I've worked before Paramount with tons of corporations in-house as a consultant, and even going on client side, there's a lot of urban myths that exist in the corporate space, right? Whether they're true or not. But I think a lot of people in-house just continue perpetuating that urban myth. Oh, we can't do that because of X or we no, that's not going to work. Right. That happens all the time. We always hear that even on the agency side. Right. And maybe that was true. Maybe it was false, but is it still true? And if it was false, then it's still false. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like pushing back on why we're getting a no. Why does this not work? So I think again, dispelling those myths that exist internally. And that could be on a corporate level. It could be in a department level. It could be on a team level. And those are the biases that we have as market researchers that exist, unfortunately. And now if we bring in our own personal biases, that's a whole nother level, right? So like you have these layers and layers of biases that are infiltrating your work. And as a trained researcher, you know this, Priscilla, we're trained to remove these biases as much as possible. But in that business as usual approach, that's the whole problem with biases. We don't have a system often to ask ourselves to reveal them consistently. If we don't have that built into the framework, we will fall back into it. We're only humans coming in and doing this job. And I say, you know what? And sometimes you said two decades, almost two decades. I was like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. I feel so old, but you're right. Almost two decades, but be open to your younger employees the questions that they're asking you, right? Those are little seeds. They don't have that same experience or they haven't, I want to say jaded in quotes, right? They haven't been jaded by the traditionalism or the hierarchy or whatever of the corporate policies or those urban myths. So be take that as energizing to wake you up of like, oh, maybe this could happen or let me try to figure out why this couldn't happen because they don't have that. Right. So I feel like we have these young people going into the industry and we're automatically dismissing them. But again, they know the future consumer. They are the future consumer. We need to welcome them and embrace what they don't know and the pushback or the questions that they have. Yeah. I think that's so strong. And my friend, Henry Hayes, He's a consultant in disruption as well. He would totally agree with you. Like, make sure you're listening to that Gen Zer on your team and make sure you have those Gen Zers on your team because they will kind of knock you off your chair every once in a while. And that's super important. So let's kind of end with this idea that is so stressful, I think, for brands. And this is what are consumers going to do next? (laughs) So you mentioned a couple of things about trend forecasting, that it's not about getting so insular into your category and like, what's happening here? No, what's happening broadly in the culture because we need to be awake and alive to these nuances and to understand, to not get miss the boat on what's happening next and how we could actually serve either our existing consumer or to your point, expand out and meet our next new great consumer. So in terms of trend forecasting, I know you talk about it not being a crystal ball, but what you mentioned earlier was it's more about how you approach it. It's a mindset (laughs) about it. But having said that, what are some methodologies that you do use to understand culture and generation segmentation and to really get nitty gritty to it? Yeah. So I created something for Paramount that's specifically for my team on the audience impact and intelligence team. What I tell people is that a trend method is not a one size fits all. 
right? First, you want to make sure that you're speaking the same language. How do you define a trend? What is it to you? For me, I like to keep things simple. A trend is a shift in consumer behavior and values, right? Again, consumer first. Yes, you want to still look at your category, but that's table stakes. Everyone else is doing that. You want to make sure you're always consumer centric. So consumer trends, focus on that. A shift in consumer behavior or value. Keep it simple. Then what you want to make sure is what's the objective of the trends? Is it for product innovation? Is it for marketing? Is it for communications, right? Because if you're in the product innovation space, then you want a trend that has a lifespan of at least five years because it takes a long time to launch a product. If you are doing influencer uh, content or communications, then you want a trend that has a lifespan of two to three years. So once you have your definition, the objective and the temporality of what you're looking for, then you want to think about, okay, how can I approach trend research? right? And for me, everything is cultural data. Memes, TikToks, again, I look at industries, fashion trends is a signal, is cultural data. It's not a trend, right? Again, because I don't work in the fashion industry and that's a category. Everything is cultural data and you need to analyze the world the same way you analyze statistics. If I give someone three statistics, they're able to give me a story. If I give someone a statistic, a brand campaign, and a meme, all of a sudden they're lost. But you can find the story similarly with the three data points, right? And it tells you something about the world. I would say it even tells you more about the world because a lot of traditional research is very kind of dull, right? 80% of Gen Zers are anxious. What do you do with that? I want to know 30%, well, not that this is a good thing, but 30% of Gen Z cried because of money. I don't want that to happen. But you see the difference between the statistics. And I think also when it comes to quant, people are so, well, I need a high number. If something's 80%, it's kind of like we know it already, right? So we want to also look at what's the emerging data, what's the emerging stories, and how can we look at what else is happening in the world to dimensionalize that 30% and show that this is actually a growing, unfortunately, emotion, right, around money, around the world. So I think it's that, making sure that you're practicing how to analyze culture. And oftentimes when I do workshops with clients and advertising partners, they want to jump ahead. And I said, listen, you're never going to go into yoga class and do a handstand right away. It's a muscle that you need to practice. So I think it's about making sure that you're creating a framework that works for you, not looking at any other trend agency that provides all this great material that I feel should be used as a starting point, not your end point. But what oftentimes happens, which I'm noticing, is that you have people that have been strategists for 15 years or I've done insights for 15 years. And now the corporate world is waking up like, oh, cultural insights are a big thing. So they'll have someone that's never done in a trend work before coming up with a trend framework. We would never have a qualitative person come up with a quant framework, right? We would never have an account manager come up with a strategic framework. But for some reason, we're allowing people that have never done trends or cultural anthropology to come up with these frameworks. So it's kind of like you have the blind leading the blind to be completely candid. Yeah. 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 They still require so much rigor, even though there's so many question marks on what is happening, what's coming next. 
there has to be a standard and there has to be a protocol for how are we going to get there. I love that that thing you said about the three data points leading to a story. So often you know, market researchers are rushing to what are those three so I can go write the story because honestly, everybody's under a time crunch. So I'm not blaming mm-hmm. anybody. You work under a very high pressure public facing company. So we all understand the realities of it, but it is smart to stop and say, where am I getting those three data points? And is that really sound? Where is the rigor to this trend forecasting? I really love that a lot. So what would you say to people who feel pretty stressed out about trend forecasting where their brand is going? I want you to give one more piece of advice that is maybe some encouragement to somebody who is saying, well, we're afraid we're about ready to miss a boat. Where should they start? Yeah. What I want to say is that when it comes to trends, oftentimes people think, oh, you have to be young and cool to do that. I'm not young and I'm not cool. Right. Well, I would beg to differ. I'm not. <laughs> There's cooler Please, people in the you world. have to be cool, Angel, because we're connected and we're, I feel like you're my guide. <laughs> we're all part of culture. All of us, right? We're all consumers. You might not be touching every single part of culture, subcultures, whatever, but there's something that you're passionate about, right? I would say start with what you're passionate about. Is it anime? Is it gardening? And trying to see how can you identify where anime or gardening is going, right? Look at the signals. How is gardening being talked about? Who are the new influencers in gardening? So I would say start there. And also it's something that you love, right? So you're not going to mind spending time on it. That's an easy way in. I also feel like there's a lot of trend intelligence that's free on social media and these trend subscriptions. Use that. to Treat that as a competitive audit, right? See how people are doing it, different frameworks. Then think about, okay, I have all of this research. We do this with our brands. We do competitive audits all the time. Do a trend audit. What works? This doesn't work. This is not relevant to us. I actually like what this agency is doing and then sort of put things together. And then, you know what, reach out to people that have been doing this for a long time to help you build that. Don't do it on your own. I feel like oftentimes people feel they need to crack it. And this is something that I tell my team all the time. No one's going to crack it by themselves. I still don't crack things on my own. Right. And I feel like it makes the work better by including more people, different levels of experience, different experiences, worldviews, different ethnicities, different education. You know what I mean? It makes the work better every single time. I love what you said about that. That's a cross-pollination really of ideas. And as I've been working and finalizing my book, uh, Collaboration is the New Competition, I kind of start out with the bad news is you, you know, you can't go it alone. And the good news is you can't go it alone. (laughs) So let's work together and kind of get these different disciplines coming together. And I love what you said there. You can also reach out to people in the industry. Yeah. I want to say something, a story that I'll never, never forget. And this was years ago at an agency. And I was designing a huge workshop for a global detergent brand. And they wanted some people from the team, the the agency to join. And I really pushed for the office manager to join the workshop because I felt that she had a unique point of view. She's been a mom for years. She's Latina. So many things were working. She's the customer. And I got so much pushback of including her in the workshop. And I made sure she was part of it. She ended up having better insights, better ideas, than some of the SVPs. 
this is to your point about not putting yourself into an echo chamber and actually getting outside of the sea of sameness. You can't do that if you just keep doing business as usual. I just love that. Let me come back where real quick to the point of reach out to people who know what they're doing. Please, in our show notes, you can go look for the link to Angel's LinkedIn. It's Angel Bayon. It's B-E-L-L-O-N. So go look him up and connect with him. And as you can tell, you're always going to have a good conversation. (laughs) So, but if you're with us at a conference or something like that, you need to go get your glass of wine and then come over to us because we'll probably already be deep in a conversation. Angel, thank you so much for joining us here on Ponderings from the Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I can't wait to chat with you again. (laughs) Awesome. From all of the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.